welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm inside your house. It depends on which version, because if it's the film, <laughs> you're barely in my house. It's very true. <laughs> and our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Te territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequapmulu. And today's text, There's Someone Inside Your House, takes place in a fictional town in Nebraska, the traditional territory of the Omaha, Winnebago, Ponca, Iowa, Santi Sioux, and Sac and Fox peoples. Joe. Mm-hmm. We have come technically to the end of Scary Month, although I, I feel like we have to we have to disclose something here, Joe, mm-hmm. which is that we are recording on Friday the 13th. Yeah. Like, how aligned is that? <laughs> it's amazing. And this episode drops on halloween oh my gosh it's almost like you're good at this scheduling thing (laughs) (laughs) no it's all circumstance (laughs) but brenna you have made it you made it through five weeks of spooky season this year i think i whined the least this year of any year we've done this in fairness and adulation to myself, I tried to pick <laughs> a few more texts that were a bit more middle gradey spooky as opposed yes. to like, like we could have done all texts that are like this one. There's someone inside your house. That would have probably been too much for me. Although I have yeah. to say, like, in a growth as a person moment, since we're mm-hmm. congratulating ourselves for things. Yes. I actually got quite a bit of pleasure out of reading this book. Like, I'm not going to oh, argue God. it's a perfect book or without errors or whatever, Ooh. but like, I was spooked. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the like suspense aspect. Okay. I enjoyed figuring out and then being wrong about who the killer was. Like, <laughs> I had a very enjoyable experience with someone inside your house without trying to pretend that it's anything that it's not. And then I watched the movie and got big mad. So I'm excited to talk about both those things with you today. (laughs) Oh, yes, because people do like it when you get mad. They do. You're welcome, everybody. It's a big me be mad week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 50-50. Yeah, it's interesting. I was telling you off mic that I read this book. So I had seen the film first, and then I read the book for this recording. I finished it probably four or five days ago, and then promptly forgot about 80% of the characters. So when I watched the film, I was like, oh, I don't remember if this is accurate or not. (laughs) Well, and this is a fair criticism, I think. So I don't know Stephanie Perkins' work at all. I suspect at some point, Joe, we're going to have to do Anna and the French Kiss. Mm-hmm. But this book is like the horror fluff, right? Like, oh, yeah. there's nothing substantial or stick to your no. ribs about what's happening in this book, like at all. And even its vague attempts to have a purpose, it backs away from. Mm-hmm. So, and then the film just does weird things with it. So, like, I do think it's interesting how. Well, we'll talk about the plot in a second, but it does seem like Perkins starts off with like wanting to have a bit of like a moral message. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know if she just gets spooked about it or what, but she (laughs) she backs off it entirely. And we have a very, a very strange readerly experience, I would say. As I say, I really enjoyed it. But yeah, like if I wasn't intentionally trying to remember the plot for today's episode, I would I would not. I would not yeah. remember any of it. <laughs> it. It would be a vague haze of, oh, yeah, people are getting killed for 
reasons, and I think there's a corn fire. <laughs> is there a corn fire in the book? I don't think there is. I mean, I think there's I a bonfire, but I don't think anybody likes. Okay, let's do the plot, and then we can let's go do from the there. Plot. <laughs> okay, so someone inside your house is. As we've said, a bit of a fluffy horror novel. It's from 2017, and it's written by Stephanie Perkins. Stephanie Perkins is much better known for romance. So for people who have been fans of the Stephanie Perkins universe, I'm very curious for you to write in and let us know what your experience was reading this book. Um, mm. Because because I'm just curious, and I'm not familiar with her. As I, as I think I teased last week, I definitely thought this book was by Stephanie Myers for like the first 100 pages. <laughs> So that is wild because I will say the writing is far more accessible and I would say this is better? a far more uh, speedy read. Like I think that's actually part of the problem. The book goes down so easy yeah. that I was just I think skimming that's being mean. Mm. I think that the the book is a very speedy read. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's written in such a way that you can just consume huge passages of it, but yeah, you kind of hop from murder to murder, honestly. Like, yeah. you slow down to read the murder details, and then you kind of speed up through the other stuff. Or at least I did. Yeah, and I would argue the part of the problem with the murders is that they're often happening with characters we don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the premise is that Makani Young has moved to Osborne, Nebraska after an incident in Hawaii, where she's from. And it will take the entire book to reveal what the backstory is. I did see the number one critique of this book is that the reveal, like the payoff, is not worth it. Well, it's very interesting, right? Because uh, just to spoil it for everybody, basically, McCanny mm -hmm. was in a hazing situation and she cut off another girl's hair. And for yep. some reason, the police blamed her, even though she was clearly like had been fed alcohol by older girls uh -huh. and was clearly in not in the power situation. Yeah, whose parents all knew and like endorsed the hazing like it was something that everyone knew happened and just went with it. And her terrible mother didn't give her the heads up that everybody else had. So it's like, mm -hmm. it's this whole twisted situation of she feels really responsible, but also like, especially as an adult reader, you're like, child, you were not responsible for any of this. Absolutely. Yeah, so the reveal is, I think it's somewhat underwhelming. But the flip side is that like, it totally makes sense that it has consumed her. Um, mm -hmm. But it, well, let me rewind to the rest of the plot and we'll talk about why it doesn't really work sure. as a reveal, I don't think. So basically, Makani is living with her grandmother who's having some memory issues. So like stuff's getting left around weird places in the house. And it's like, huh, that's strange. But, you know, grandma mm -hmm. has memory issues. Um, but of course, what we come to realize over time as murders happen throughout the town is that <laughs> there's someone inside your house and like someone doing creepy stuff. The movie gets very sensational with it. But I think the level of creep yes. factor of what people are doing inside the houses what the murderer is doing inside the houses in the book. Like that is, that is a perfect level of creep factor for me. I really enjoyed mm -hmm. the like, I put the egg timer down here, but now it's here. And now the egg timer's there. And like the slow burn realization that you're actually kind of being stalked in your own home. Like it worked for mm -hmm. me very well. Yeah, I find it super unsettling. I actually think that's where a lot of the creep factor comes from. You know, the the murders are described in pretty gory details, and they sound mm. pretty painful. But you're right, the idea that someone is just casually moving, just incidental things. So it's just enough to make you question whether you're going mad until you realize, yes. oh, no, someone else is in here, and then you're dead. 
she's very good at pacing that because it is like the moment that a person realizes that this isn't their own absent-mindedness is the mm-hmm. moment they get murdered. And it's like, it's, yeah. I found it very effective. It worked for me very well. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So basically we start out with the murder of like the most popular kid in the drama club and then it's yep. the high school quarterback. And so the rest of the teen posse who honestly joe like we could go into them all but could you tell them apart like (laughs) there's this circle of friends mccani has and there's like there's a trans boy character darby and there's darby's Mm -hmm. best friend alex and then there's like those are the only two that some others and then there's ollie yeah (laughs) and then there's ollie who of course is the weird boy um and mccani's group of friends are like trying to figure out you know what's the common thread between the murders and there's all these thoughts that it's like something sort of moral, right? All these people did Mm -hmm. some horrible thing. And of course, Makani believes that because she's got this secret that she's trying to not let out. But it slowly becomes clear that like, these murders are relatively random. And it's just Mm -hmm. a creepy kid at school who everybody describes as like a nothing person who has been committing all of these murders. For a while, they think it's Ollie because he's weird. But that red herring actually gets disposed of satisfyingly early in the book, dragged out way too long in the movie, let me just say. Well, Okay, and that is the huge difference, I think, between the book and the film, Mm -hmm. which weirdly does change a lot of the pacing, particularly. Mm -hmm. So the book is not a whodunit because we learn that it's David, the best friend of one of the murder victims, Rodrigo, maybe, I want to say, like, just past the halfway mark. And then the rest of the book is a manhunt for David as our characters are sort of trying to go about their regular lives and then murders keep happening. And also falling in love. Don't forget they're falling in love. Oh, of course, yes, the falling in love part. (laughs) And then the film is a proper whodunit where you're not meant to know who the killer is until the very last reveal. And, you know, they change who the killer is, but it's also really obvious who the killer is going to be in the movie. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so I think you're right, Joe. And I think that's part of what is a bit messy in the plot of the book is that, as I say, we start off with this idea of, like, there's going to be this moral, like, linkage Mm -hmm. between the characters getting murdered. And then we abandon that. And then Makani gives her big reveal about this secret that she's keeping And it's really not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the end, the book is mostly about like Makani and Ollie falling in love and the kids in town Mm -hmm. realizing that people get murdered for no reason. (laughs) Like, that's basically (laughs) it. That's the book. I find it very satisfying, but that is ultimately the book. (laughs) Yeah. I can't deny that I enjoyed reading it. As I said, it was very fast and it is the right amount of fluffy for a teen thriller slash slasher but my big issue was just the sort of nonsensical like there's no stakes at the end of it when you look back on the book you realize oh they were probably never in danger because or maybe everybody was in danger because david did seem to be so arbitrary in who he was going after you know his motivation at the end of the book is revealed to be he went after anyone that might have left town so anybody with promise or potential but that includes anybody who is going to college which is like half of the graduating student body (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because it starts off as being like, oh, it's like, well, it it starts off with the secret thing. And then they go through this period of like people who are excelling in their field. But yeah, Mm -hmm. then it ends up being like 
anybody who got accepted to college. And I mean, the whole thing is really just like a low key burn on Ollie, right? Because he's right. he's literally the only one of the friend group who is never in danger. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that like Ollie wants to leave town more than anybody, but he never will be able to. So I, I get it from that perspective, but I don't think it carries a lot of weight by the time mm-hmm. you get to the end of the book. It really is a like deaths happen for no reason kind of plot. Yeah, yeah. But wasn't it great that it brought Makani and Ollie together? Yeah, they fell in love. <laughs> I mean, my other favorite thing, and it happens in both the book and the film, albeit for, I gathered, slightly different reasons, is that people think Ollie is weird because he does things like dye his hair in the book <laughs> or has dead parents in the film. You're just like, neither of these reasons are substantial for people to think you're a killer. And yet that also feels appropriately teenagery, where yeah. people are just so mean for arbitrary reasons. Well, yeah. So the idea is that Ollie has not just dyed his hair, but dyed his hair pink. So pink. it's like, OMG. But also, mm-hmm. like, the book was published in 2017. So it's not like, it's not like pink hair on boys was like such a wild thing. So it really does feel like no. a very small town artifact here. Like, his otherness is about not really being a jock. Mm-hmm. And not really having one of the other, like, groups to hang with. Yeah. But yeah, in the movie, they're just like, maybe he murdered his parents. And you're like, wait, what? What? <laughs> where, where did you even get that from? <laughs> exactly. I'm curious, Brenna, because we've had conversations and we even have a whole mini-sode on the subject about placenessness. Mm. I feel like this book has a sense of timelessness because you said written in 2017 but this book feels like it could be 90s early 2000s so it's very interesting because i kept forgetting that they had cell phones like Mm -hmm. there's often a mention of like oh i lost my charger or whatever and i i thought a lot about something you said like ages ago one other spooky season when you talked about how like so much of contemporary teen horror is like writing the cell phones out like figuring out a way Mm -hmm. to not have them be able to call for help um yes and there's a lot of that here but when they're not actively talking about their cell phones you do totally Mm -hmm. forget what era it's supposed to be set in and i think you know there's a small towniness about that there's a sort of stepped back in time kind of vibe but the film actually has it too because everybody drives relatively like older beat up cars like the film Mm -hmm. has a good sense of sort of actually like the class issues at play in the book i think so i I had that sense in the book too like i kept forgetting what era it was supposed to be Mm -hmm. yeah and even the inclusion of a trans character which is usually Mm -hmm. a pretty strong indicator of oh we're obviously in probably the 2010s or beyond because we didn't often include casual queer characters and definitely not trans characters unless the book was explicitly about them. But the sort of nothingness of all of the characters made me constantly forget that Darby was. Like, I think Perkins also has a trouble with voice, where all Mm. of the characters sound very similar to me. Yeah, I agree. And it's a shame because one of the neat things I think that happens in the book is you do have this fractured perspective. So whenever Mm -hmm. somebody's about to be murdered, we switch to their perspective, which is great for amping up the tension and giving Mm -hmm. us the sense of like, oh my gosh, I'm being stalked within my own home. And it works perfectly until those characters open their mouths. And then unfortunately, (laughs) 
Everybody (laughs) literally has the exact same like speech patterns Mm -hmm. uh, and it totally breaks the illusion. And it's genuinely a bummer because I really loved that sort of, I mean, as we all know, I don't read a lot of this kind of thing. So for me, it was, it was definitely working this idea of like, I turn the page of a chapter and suddenly I'm out of Makani's head and I'm into like Rodrigo's head. And I know, Mm -hmm. like, I know something's about to happen. Yeah. So when the, the voice, the actual speaking voices failed so badly, that was a huge bummer. Yeah, it's particularly annoying because the murders are kind of the best part of the book. I think they Perkins are. excels at describing chase sequences, yeah. you know, violent actions and so on. So I found the murder set pieces very effective and quite scary and gory. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a slasher in the truest sense, right? Like mm-hmm. the only way the murderer attacks in the book is with knives uh they they add a taser in the film and for the dramatic effect of it all i guess but in the book it is it is all stabbing all the time and the unique ways that this murderer (laughs) finds to stab people wow (laughs) lots of stabbing didn't know there were so many ways to stab people i genuinely didn't (laughs) i mean i did but yeah this is my genre Well, why don't we transition over to the film? Oh, all right. <laughs> the fuck? You're in my house, so I can legally kill you. Jackson Pace took a knee on the field of life. Hope they're serving fireball up in paradise, brother. Now I want to die. Doesn't make sense, you know? Why would the killer go after Jackson? Got secrets. Careful out there, friend. Crazy people in this town. I have a secret. I accidentally ran over a hitchhiker and dumped his body into the ocean. Is that bad? I just want to live. Shit, there's someone wearing Rodrigo's face. just are who you are. You don't have any secrets. You can't hide anything anymore. Makani, I know who you are. Okay, so there's someone inside your house had a bit of a rocky debut because it was delayed a few times. So it was initially supposed to be released in February of 2021, and then it got shifted to August, and then it got released finally in October of 2021. No clear reason why, but uh, yeah, okay. So (laughs) this is, I mean, here's the thing, movies do get shifted. Sometimes it's just programming decisions. Sometimes it means that the, the studio or the exhibitor doesn't have faith in the project, but we often don't know, so we can only speculate. Well, can I ask a question, Joe? Mm-hmm. Like a genre-related question, which is sure. that, so it seems to me that if you have a lot of confidence in a horror movie, you release it outside of the Halloween season. But if you don't, you just want to cash in on the October ticket sales. Would you not say? 
Oh, that's a tricky one because sometimes the answer is yes and sometimes the answer is yes and where mm. horror movies do tend to perform better in October, although not always, <laughs> but sometimes they will hold a big title for October because they know that the sort of amplification of Halloween <sighs> will give an already popular title that extra boost, which is why we're seeing something like Exorcist Believer come out this month. Gotcha. Okay. Because I noticed I was like, wow, this movie in February, like you'd have to have a lot of faith that it was going to land. Yeah, but it's also Netflix. So their oh, yeah. programming decisions are wonky at the best of times. Obviously, we don't have a ton of analytics, but they will just drop stuff all the time. And the, the reality with horror is that horror typically performs at any time of the year. It's one of the surest bet genres that there is. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so this was adapted into a screenplay by Henry Gayden, and it was directed by Patrick Rice. Uh, if you ever do want a truly genuinely creepy film directed by Patrick Rice, Brenna, I would recommend Creep or Creep 2, which finds Mark Duplass being a, like social media grifter uh Ooh. it's a very unsettling performance it's found footage highly recommend and i think it skewed a lot of people's reactions to bryce directing this because he both stars in creep as well as directs it so people oh. were like "Ooh, this is going to be really good and the film is unfortunately a little paint by numbers yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay so we've got sydney park as makani there's a lot of Canadians because this was shot in Vancouver, but also I think we were like trying to get those tax credits. <laughs> so we've got fantastic Quebecois actor Theodore Pellerin as Ollie. He's awful in this movie. He's so bad, Joe. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He is probably one of the best young actors in Canada. So it is saying something that he is really aggressively not good here. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. We've got Ashta Cooper as Alex, Jesse Latourette as Darby. Darby is no longer trans. They are non-binary. Uh, Jesse Latourette is gender fluid. So we can use any pronouns to describe them. We have Diego Joseph as Rodrigo. Dale Wibley as Zach. Uh, Zach is our new killer and i would yeah. argue has the same issues as david where it's almost <laughs> like they're not a character but yeah we'll get there we've got berkeley duffield as caleb and caleb is a high school football player who is openly gay in the movie i could not remember this character from the book <laughs> I think they're the grocery store murder, if I'm not mistaken. They are, yeah. They're the, the Caleb's the church kid murder okay. in the book. Yeah. Yeah, but not gay as far as I remembered. Nope. Okay. Nope. We also have Sarah Dugdale as Katie. That is the girl who is killed in the church. My favorite murder in this movie. Absolutely the best murder in the movie. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then we have Markian Tarasiuk as Jackson. That is our opening high school quarterback football kill. Jill. Mm -hmm. Can I recount for you my journey watching this movie from <laughs> bemusement to disappointment? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So the movie opens and I actually love mm -hmm. both the first murder yep. and the font on the screen, like all the choices they make in the opening. I mm -hmm. dug. It made it feel very timeless. It feels very like you're watching a 70s horror movie at the beginning. Like, okay. I dug all of the open cornfields and weird creepy fonts. Right yep. up my alley. Yeah. 
I will say, I think the film is really good up to a point, And then all of a sudden you can just feel everything falling apart. So I'm excited to tell you what my point was to see if it matches your point. Because I know exactly the minute this movie lost me. But I really liked that whole scene. And I knew, you know, I was thinking to myself as I was watching it, okay, we're way sensationalizing the murders. So Mm -hmm. instead of somebody just like subtly making you feel like you're losing your mind in your house, what they're doing is like papering your walls with photos of your greatest shame, right? Yes. And so, you know, the high school quarterback has been involved in a really horrific hazing. And then Mm -hmm. the religious girl uh, at the church who is the second kill. It turns out she secretly hosts a white supremacist podcast. But Brenna, she only recorded one episode. (laughs) Joe, when I tell you how hard I laughed at that scene, I got such pleasure out of (laughs) that whole scene. Really enjoyed it. It's so good. Okay. So here's the through line that we're getting. The characters are being murdered because they have some massive secret grotesque shame. Yeah, they're all hypocrites. And so Zach decides he's going to throw this party and everybody's going to spill their secrets. And Mm -hmm. Zach's family is extremely wealthy. And in spilling their secrets, they will take away the killer's power. In reality, they're just giving all their secrets to the killer. They don't know that, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the party scene is where the movie lost me. Yep. For two reasons. First, folks, we're recording this October 13th. It's been a horrific week in geopolitical news. Yeah. Uh, the Israel-Palestine situation is at it possibly the most horrific it's been in our lifetimes, Joe. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And we had to watch these kids turn a bunch of Nazi memorabilia into bongs. Yep. And it fell so hard and so flat for me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, Brenna, this has to do with this moment that we're in. Filmmakers didn't know that we were in this exact situation right now. Maybe have a little bit of grace and see where the movie goes next. And then we have our next kill. Mm -hmm. And the great quote unquote shame of our next kill is that the kid is addicted to fentanyl. Joe, that is not on the same level as recording a podcast about white supremacy or nearly murdering a kid in a hazing. And Mm -hmm. the fact that the film draws that equivalence, I... I got so mad. And then from that point on, it's just messy. Like, what even is the through line after that point? For me, that's where the whole thing fell apart. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because it is the same part for me, albeit for slightly different reasons. I chalk this up to Zach himself being a huge hypocrite. And I think the film wants us to believe that. He starts off with a mission and then it just becomes completely arbitrary. I would argue because he starts to develop an appetite for murdering people. It almost doesn't matter who he kills anymore. The end goal is ultimately his dad. And that's why he gets really mad that he gets interrupted. But he's a classic spoiled rich boy who starts murdering people for pleasure. And then he gets caught and killed. Yeah, and I guess, like, why does the film go to so much trouble to set up the sort of moral imperative of the Mm -hmm. murders only to... Abandon it. Abandon it. And not just abandon it, but draw such a distressing false equivalency with the drug issue. Like, I just, I think that it's not just that it's messy, it's that the sort of subliminal messaging of those choices is really, Mm -hmm. really troubling. Yeah, yeah. And then... Subsequent attacks don't even have the same power. Like, I would argue the other reason that this whole sequence doesn't really work for me anymore is because Rodrigo's death is 
dumb. Mm-hmm. Like the first two murders are really impactful. They're drawn out. They're suspenseful, intense. And with Rodrigo, there's this moment where he sees himself because we haven't talked about it. Zach is rich enough that he can afford a 3D printer. So he prints out masks of the victim's face that he wears when he kills them. Like a good 3D printer. Like the masks are very uncanny, creepy good. Uh, I would say some of them look really good and others when the killer shows up, you can't actually even tell if it's the same person he's killing. <laughs> oh, but, okay. See, now I'm, I was curious if that was just my general inability to tell white men apart or if that was like hmm. an actual consistent issue in the film. <laughs> yeah, I find some of them okay, some of them not so good. I actually think the Rodrigo one is pretty darn good. Yeah, the McConaughey one is really creepy. Yeah, yeah. But when he sees himself at the party, it's a really scary moment. Mm -hmm. And then he just locks himself in a closet and then he goes through a vent and then he comes out and gets tased in a pool and stabbed. And I find it extremely underwhelming. And -hmm. from that moment on, all of the subsequent attacks are just muted. They're kind of neutered. Even the Makani one, right? Which should yeah. be the centerpiece of the film, the way the film has been structured. Mm-hmm. So all the way along, Makani believes, after basically the first murder, Makani believes that it's Ollie, like all her friends do. Whereas in yes. the book, she never actually believes that it's Ollie, and she mm-hmm. is always Ollie's defender, and they drop the red herring early. In the film, yep. that red herring carries us almost to the very end of the film, um, but it at least carries us to the Makani set piece. And no, past that, way past mm-hmm. that, actually. Way past it. So the McConaughey attempted murder should be everything, right? Because she's yep. our main character. Like, the fact that she's in this situation, that's also the big reveal of her her core secret. So, like, it should have such gravitas. Mm-hmm. And other than the moment when she looks out the window and we know the killer's there and she doesn't and the yep. mask is so good, that mm-hmm. moment is perfect. Yeah. But the rest of it is just like... Eh. Well, and if we're being realistic, which you probably should never do in a horror film, (laughs) she should not have survived this attack because she literally pulls down Zach by grabbing his ankle and he falls and then Ollie yells her name and Zach just takes off. The reality is, is that Zach would have had more than enough time to have stabbed her a bunch, and she barely gets a hand on him that apparently makes him fall over. It was not convincing. I can't believe we didn't reshoot it, restage it, try to amplify it, crank it up a little bit. I think it's disappointing, too, because one of the coolest scenes in the book is that when Makani is attacked in her own home... Makani, her grandmother, and Ollie are all mm-hmm. in danger, and yeah. Makani really is the hero of that scene. Yep. She is the active protagonist, and at one point, one of the friends in forgiving Ollie their initial thought that he was the killer says, like, thank you so much for saving her, and Ollie's like, oh, no, no, she saved herself, which mm-hmm. is absolutely not what happens in the film. Like, if Alex hadn't come in and yelled in that moment, like, she would absolutely be dead. Yeah. And so I think that's a disappointment, too, because Makani is... Uh, It takes away a lot of her potential power. So between Mm -hmm. that and the sort of the fact that in the movie version, they really crank up the reveal. So it's not just that Makani cuts off a girl's hair. She actually like melts a girl's face and a bonfire. Um, It's a lot more gruesome. So I don't know. Makani's a lot less compelling, I think, as a character in the film version as a result of these choices. Yeah, it's really disappointing because I don't mind Sydney Park, but I think as a character, Makani is flat. Like, mm-hmm. the character is almost DOA from the moment the film begins. 
I also have a really huge issue. This is going to sound like the funniest thing I have ever said on this podcast. In the book, McConaughey is the only racialized figure in a sea of white Nebraskans. Yes. The film is colorblind casting. So we've got a huge swath of different racialized figures. So this idea that McConaughey feels separate or an outsider, and that's why she ended up making friends with Darby <laughs> um, and Alex, none of it makes sense no. or works in the film. So we don't even address it. We just pretend like race is a non-issue in the movie, whereas it's a foundational component of McConaughey's friendship in the book. Well, and even at one point when they're all trying to like figure out what the commonality is, they're all like, oh, these are all the odd people out. And McConaughey's mm -hmm. like, well, how am I the odd person out? And everybody just looks at her and like, well, you know, because, uh, mm. yeah. And so, yeah, without any of that, also the other dynamic that's lost is McConaughey is never very secure in her friendships with Darby and Alex because they have this close friendship that predates McConaughey. Mm -hmm. And so when the issue of Ollie comes between them, there's this real temptation to like tell them she agrees that Ollie is the one doing the murders, even though she knows he's not, just so right. that she doesn't lose that connection to them. Mm -hmm. And none of that subtext exists in the film at all. They're just like, no. these are a random group of people who spend time together for reasons that are unclear. Oh, 100%. <laughs> to the point that when Caleb, who is the openly gay football player, randomly just starts hanging out with them, I'm just like, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> a group of misfits who just organically come together? He never fits in. And yet we pretend like we're so protective of him that when he almost gets slashed, it's a huge deal. The movie is really terrible at establishing <laughs> relationships or making you care about these characters. It would have been better to have kept Makani with just a couple of tight friends and then kill off randos. Yes. Yeah. Part of it is exactly that. They try to give us some emotional gravitas by having the deaths happen extremely close to their friend group. So like mm -hmm. Rodrigo and Alex are actually hooking up the same night that Rodrigo gets murdered. Whereas in the book... Rodrigo is this guy who Alex has had a crush on for like three years, but never done anything about. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of this dynamic that gets explored a lot in the book, actually, mm -hmm. which is like, Joe, I don't know if anybody died in your high school. No, not that I know of. Okay, so I definitely had the high school death experiences. Yes, you told us. The lightning person, right? <laughs> the lightning person, yes. And then in elementary school, a kid got killed on the train tracks. Oh, no. And I have always been fascinated by that dynamic of a small school community, but you don't actually know the person who dies. Mm -hmm. And so the grief and the the book is really interested in that idea of like, how do you grieve the idea of a person you weren't actually friends with without feeling mm -hmm. like a giant hypocrite? Yep. And that is such an interesting exploration that's going on in the book. But because the film, I don't think the film trusts the emotional like connections mm -hmm. to the characters, rightly so, in fairness. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of creating that dynamic, what we get are murders increasingly close to the friend group. Yeah. And it's actually bizarrely less compelling than mm -hmm. the randos getting killed and the characters having to be like, how do you grieve a rando? Yeah, even to the point where Alex dies in the book. And it's kind of shocking because mm -hmm. you don't expect that we're going mm -mm. to kill someone who's such a big character. Yeah. And of course, the film doesn't kill anyone important. No, mm -mm, no. In fact, can we talk about that 
end scene where like a lot of people get stabbed but everybody's okay Mm -hmm. this is a very classic movie slasher where people suffer absolutely fatal injuries and then they just kind of shrug it off and somebody walks them to the nearest ambulance at the end of the film it's pretty tried and true but still Ollie is dead in any world. He's very, very dead. And also just in general, like, I know, I know that there is like a part of watching a horror film where you're like, oh, that's a terrible decision. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. But the scene where they're like, I think we should drive into this burning cornfield Mm -hmm. to rescue the football team that we were making fun of 43 minutes ago, runtime wise, is very strange to me. And like... Also, isn't the most likely outcome of that scenario that they run over the people Mm -hmm. who are trying to escape? A hundred percent. It's a corn (laughs) maze that everyone has gone into. You don't know where people are in the maze, so you're just going to drive at full speed into the corn. Also, corn is really tough. I don't know how far you would get before you would just wreck your car. This is all movie magic. (laughs) It is. It is movie magic. And I think part of the problem is that the film doesn't get you to a place where you suspend disbelief. Mm -hmm. Like, part of it is that the story is so messy, it loses you. Part of it is that, like, a lot of these performances are not compelling. So the idea that I'm also going to follow this car full of teenagers into the burning corn maze, by this point, I was like, you Mm -hmm. know what? Absolutely not. (laughs) You deserve whatever fate you get out of this. I hope you all die. Goodbye. Yeah, I think the other thing that you've hinted at, but we've not touched on, is that the film wants to make more of an issue about class. So Mm -hmm. Zach's reason for doing all these murders, he himself is a hypocrite, but he's a rich little boy. His dad owns all of the town. We're gobbling up people's farms for pennies on the dollar, is what he literally says at the party at one point. And everyone in town hates him. And Mm -hmm. Zach also hates himself and hates his father. So this whole big thing has been well i'm gonna kill anybody who's a hypocrite who's basically like me but it's also an excuse to then kill my dad and get away with it and that could work the problem is is that the movie is staged as a whodunit and you're Mm -hmm. meant to question who the killer is but the killer prints 3d mass yeah it can literally only be zach class-wise nobody else in this town has the money to be the murderer (laughs) Exactly. So when we keep trying to hit Ollie as the red herring because he is the weird dude who, P.S., he's not even weird in the movie. He's (laughs) just French. (laughs) He's not weird. He's just French. Oh, my God. Tagline for the episode, Joe. You've never had a better one. (laughs) (laughs) It's just it's so ridiculous. I mean, I'll confess the first time I saw this. I gave up trying to figure it out because I couldn't be bothered to invest in the characters because the movie clearly wasn't going to do anything. So when the killer reveal came out, I was like, oh, how hum, okay. (laughs) But when you pay even the slightest bit of attention, it's really, really obvious. Yeah. It can only be Zach. And like, Mm -hmm. I think I was sort of bummed out. Again, is another example, I think, of the film pulling its punch or not deciding at the last minute to not actually be about anything. But, like, there's this whole speech he has about how, like, I'm privileged and I felt bad about my privilege for all this time, but why should I feel bad about my privilege? And Mm -hmm. it's like, did you guys want this movie to be about this? Because you should have brought it up before just now, (laughs) if this is what you wanted the movie to be about. 
Yeah, it's perplexing because I think ultimately the film believes it has been doing that with all of the class <laughs> stuff. It's just it ends up ringing really tone deaf at the end of it to the point where I can't help but wonder if the movie is making fun of Zach for being a hypocrite idiot and so on. But even if that is the case, I don't think it's done well enough that mm -mm. all of the audiences will understand that. Well, I think in general, the film is really bad about picking up threads and yeah. then dropping them and never tying them up in a very satisfying way. Like, I got to the end of the film and I was like, all right. <laughs> uh-huh. It's a big old ho-hum. It is. Whereas I got to the end of the book and I was like, all right, like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> this was satisfying to me. This is fine. I'll forget it immediately. But I enjoyed the experience. I didn't even really enjoy the experience of this movie. I just felt like I just watched somebody's big old mess for an hour and a half. <laughs> I will say, strength of the film, it is a solid one hour, 34 minutes. Perfect. It's a tight. Yeah, it's a tight package. <laughs> yeah. I think it's also especially disappointing when the movie starts well, and then mm -hmm. you can tell when it loses you. Like... I, I would almost rather it have been bad from the get-go, and then you just realize, oh, it's just not a very good film. But it starts with a lot of promise. And I actually like Patrick Bryce's direction for the most part, but the situations and the performances just don't carry the movie. So mm -hmm. there's a certain point where, I don't know, the temptation to check my phone was overwhelming. Oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> the only reason I didn't is because I watched it in the bath. Oh, okay. Well, okay. I had COVID. So, you know, I did a lot of things in the bath for the last week. <laughs> There's someone inside your bath. <laughs> let's play some YA bingo. Oh, let's do. Bingo! Not a good bingo. All right. So we have quite a lot of CanCon here. These are mm, the cornfields mm -hmm. of Langley, if I am not mistaken. Welcome to beautiful British Columbia. And like 80% of this cast. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm going to have to say we have to put aged up on the board here because yes. these people are all in their mid-20s. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like there's some scenes where it doesn't matter, but particularly the first murder. I was like, why is this 30-year-old man pretending to be a high school football player? <laughs> oh, yeah. And Caleb and Jackson. I mean, we're pretty used to seeing this for anything related to sports figures, but these grown-ass men look like they are on <laughs> steroids and or have been hitting the gym for a decade. It is wild. It is simply wild. Okay. Obviously, we have a lot of dead bodies, like absolutely no shortage. Mm-hmm. I really like the friendships and I really like the love story with Ollie in the book, but we have to call them hollow in the film. There's 100%. there's nothing else to call them. Yeah. I do love the book Perfect Date with the Cornfield. Mm -hmm. Ollie takes Makani out to see the cornfields and pretend that it's an ocean because he knows she misses Hawaii. It's a lovely scene. It's cut short in a really satisfying way in the book. And it's it's such a nothing moment in the film. And then it's like, yeah. oh, there's a taser and a mask. Also, Joe, why did he have the mask in his glove box? I, mm, I don't know. <laughs> because he's a red herring. The film doesn't ever come back to it. It's like, I get why the taser's in his glove box. His brother's a mm -hmm. cop, gave him a taser. But the mask? Yeah, no. Mm -mm. No follow-up questions. Anyway, whatever. Um, yeah. I could keep both going all day, so you do some. <laughs> okay. I'm going to say borrow time because, of course, it's always a matter mm -hmm. of time until someone gets discovered or murdered. 
We've got inclusion flip for the film because a bunch of people are now racialized. And I'm going to say house porn because even Jackson's house, his giant isolated farmhouse, gorgeous. Yeah, I can tell you live in a condo because you're like, I don't care if it's isolated and barely has electricity. Look at all that space. (laughs) I'll take a cabin at this point. (laughs) Um, I do want to give it to good friendships, as I already said. I think we could make an argument for the queer secondary characters in the film with Caleb, at least. And I guess Darby, maybe, um, in both. (sighs) Darby is so frustrating because mm-hmm. it feels very 2021 to say, yeah, we're going to include a non-binary character and this individual likes space because they wear a NASA jacket the entire film and that's as much as we're going to do with them. It's just like, what? what why? It's so checkboxy. Here's another thread that the film tries to pull and then fails to is like, I guess, I guess Darby is going away to school to do something sciencey. We get shown sure. an acceptance letter, but we can't read it because it's on a Mm-mm. phone on a screen. <laughs> but then in the last, so in the last scene, they're showing like everybody's final moments, including the fact that like Makani is going to be the valedictorian with her poetry that she does for some reason. B.S. Everybody's <laughs> having all these great moments. And then they're all crowded around Darby in the stairwell while Darby puts on a NASA hat. And that's like Mm -hmm. the big significant moment for Darby. And all I could think was like, well, they already had the jacket. Why is the Mm -hmm. hat a big deal? I don't understand what's happening here. It's like, I'm sure that was supposed to be a moment, except that the film forgot that it didn't tell us about it. Yeah, it's like the jacket was aspirational, but the hat means I'm (laughs) definitely going there. (laughs) It's so weird. Um, Inauthentic voice, unfortunately, for the dialogue. They are are all the same character. Yeah. And then, of course, we have our Netflix connection because this was always going straight to Netflix. Yes, totally. Um, I think that's all I have. I have nothing under the G at all. No, I was going to try to make an argument for sexual awakening between Ollie and Makani in, in the car outside the Jiffy Lube or whatever, but it's a stretch. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna say no to that. I did kind of <laughs> like that it wasn't a new relationship, though. They weren't falling in love in either mm-hmm. text. It was, oh, yeah, we tried this secretly, and then something didn't work out. Yeah, and I think what I found refreshing about the book is actually they don't will they won't they till the end. It's like mm-hmm. chapter three, and Makani's finally like, can we just yeah publicly a couple and ollie's like oh i'm so glad you asked that and it's like oh this Mm -hmm. is satisfying i didn't want this to drag out for the whole book yeah yeah and then of course that's what we do for the film yeah Mm. (laughs) (laughs) all right so no lines that actually surprises me i thought for sure we were gonna get a line it's a lot of squares but not in the right configuration yeah all right well joe Mm -hmm. we are at the end of scary season Yay! And that means we're going to have some really great texts in the future and also some personal torture coming up. So (laughs) next week we are watching season three of Reservation Dogs, which, oh, Joe, I just Mm -hmm. am so excited to go back there and hang out with those kids again. Yeah, it's the final season. So we're going to be talking about all 10 episodes. And spoiler alert, I cried my way through this season. Amazing. And then we are going to go to Brenna's personal hell for two solid weeks because we are doing 
Mockingjay, book and mm-hmm. film. And then we are finally watching the film adaptation of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Now, committed listeners will know that we read the book right when it came out. So mm-hmm. now we're turning around and taking a look at the film adaptation that was always going to come. I don't remember Indeed. the book at all, Joe, so I am actually going to reread it. <laughs> Because I literally oh. don't remember one word of it. Wow. And the funny thing is, is that I'm not going to reread all of Mockingjay because Alex Heaney and I have already read and talked about the first half. So right. I'm just going to read the back half of the book. But because you weren't here for that episode, you'll have to read all of Mockingjay or else you'll be confused. I think it's unfair to punish me for family tragedy <laughs> like this, but fine, fine. <laughs> uh, here's the thing. I will say I think that Mockingjay is messy, but we could have some really good conversations. Alex and I have already sort of started that. But um, yeah, just the the way that we deal with PTSD and how people can be radicalized, I think is actually a bit more timely than it was even when the book first came out. Hmm. Okay. All right. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm. Well, I was going to say I'm willing to give it a go. I don't have a choice. So here we are. <laughs> Truly. But I, I like that you're going to say you're open-minded. <laughs> Imagine if I was open-minded. All right, folks. So if you want to get in touch with us about this episode or looking ahead to Mockingjay or anything else that strikes your fancy, mm-hmm. you can find us on the social medias at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, where do they find you? I can be reached at B still on my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A, and I'm on the Blue Skies and the Instagrams. And if you want to send us something long form, hkhspod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. I've survived another October, Joe. I'm so proud of me. There you go. I can't promise I'm not going to program other spooky, scary things throughout the year, but uh, never in concentrated doses like this. No, and frankly, I would take a month of scary stuff over having to do Mockingjay, so here we are. (laughs) (laughs) So it was meant to come out... uh, Where was this? I'm curious, Brenna, because we've had whole conversations. We even have a full mini-sode. 